You're listening to the Alberta Advantage on CJSW 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 territory in Calgary. My name is Kate Jacobson and I produce the Alberta Advantage, where we offer analysis on Albertan and Canadian history and politics from a perspective that doesn't always get a lot of airtime. Hello and welcome to the Alberta Advantage. I am your host, Kate Jacobson, and joining me today is Darren Qualman, Director of Climate Crisis Policy and Action for the National Farmers Union. Darren, thank you for joining me here on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we are so incredibly happy to have you on the podcast because we are very big fans of the National Farmers Union, which is a very cool and good organization. But for you, in addition to working for an incredibly cool and good organization, you've also authored a discussion paper for the NFU, and it's titled Tackling the Farm Crisis and the Climate Crisis, a Transformative Strategy for Canadian Farms and Food Systems. And your discussion paper basically presents these two twin crises, this idea that there is both a climate crisis and a farm crisis, and argues that both the farm crisis and the climate crisis share many of the same causes, as well as many of the same solutions. So I thought what might be a good place to start is talking about what is going on in the agricultural industry in Canada. So what kind of picture could you give us of farms in Canada and farming in Canada? How productive are they? How profitable are they? And who owns them? Yeah, thanks, Kate. So farms in Canada are really a good news, bad news story. Farms are tremendously productive. The output from Canadian farms, from Alberta farms, is at a record high. Exports are at a record high. Production per farmer, per acre, all of those things are setting records. So really, it is a tremendously productive efficient sector. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the farms being in a financial crisis, but it is not because they are not uh, cutting edge, high tech, productive, efficient, just really world leading in terms of, of what farmers here can produce. But having said that, there are real financial problems on our farms and there's a lot of income inequality on our farms in that some are, are doing quite well and a whole bunch of them aren't doing well at all. So often when people look at farms right now, they're, they're, they're very large. They seem quite prosperous. The machinery is big. The machinery is, is high cost. But a lot of what's happening there, uh, in addition to the, the income the farms are earning from the markets, they're also still dependent on taxpayer-funded subsidies. The crop insurance programs, the agri-stability, agri-invest, all of those programs are partly funded by taxpayers. And, and those programs transfer a billion, two billion, three billion dollars per year to farmers. And that's needed because so much of what farmers produce, so much of the value they produce is, is extracted from the farms through, uh, through input costs, etc. So the sector is productive. The, the value of what they produce is going up and up, but net income isn't going up. Uh, somewhere in the 1980s, net income fell and in some years was below zero. It's bobbed back up since about 2006 or seven, but it seems to be headed back down again. So it, it really is a good news, bad news pro, uh, story for agriculture and finances and income. Darren, could you tell us a little bit about what the realities of climate change look like for Canadian farmers? And what does the future look like for farmers and in agriculture? even if all nations do what is necessary to meet the COP21 Paris Agreement commitments? So coming out of the Paris talks in 2015, a lot of countries, Canada included, made commitments to reduce emissions. Uh, Canada committed to reduce its emissions by 30% by 2030. And 
Other countries made comparable commitments, some more aggressive, some less. But what uh, what the UN climate modelers and climate modelers around the world did after the Paris talks is they took all of those emission reduction commitments and they put them into their models and they made the assumption that every country in the world is going to do what they've said. They, they gave every government the benefit of the doubt that they'd meet their targets and commitments. And they asked those climate models, what will happen with emissions and temperatures if every country does what it's committed to do in Paris? And the result that came back should be very troubling. Because it turns out that if everybody does what they said, if Canada reduces by 30%, if the EU reduces by a little more, uh, other countries make comparable reductions, the emissions that result and the temperature increases that result mean that we're, we're not headed for 1.5 degrees and we're not headed for 2 degrees. The climate models say that we are headed for 3.2 degrees, even if every country meets the commitments they made in Paris. Now, while that's bad news for the planet, far, far beyond uh, the two-degree mark that's often seen as, as dangerous, it's even worse news for farmers on the prairies because the world isn't warming evenly. It's uh, not warming the same everywhere. The prairies are warming at about twice the rate of the global average. It's because we're in the middle of a continent and because we're relatively far north. Everyone's heard that the, the Arctic is warming very fast. Well, northern latitudes in general are warming very fast. So what we know is that if the world were to warm by an average of 3.2 degrees, the warming on the prairies would be about 6.4 degrees, almost a full degree every decade. That would be absolutely catastrophic. It would be almost impossible to adjust to that. Uh, it, would, it would mean that some places would become much hotter, much drier. Storms would become much more intense, droughts more common, floods more common, a whole host of very damaging and unpredictable weather events could be unleashed by that amount of warming. So the government of Canada and even the provincial government of Alberta, to a certain extent, really like to give the impression that they are reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which are, of course, the primary contributions to climate change. But could you tell us a little bit about what has been the trend when it comes to Canada's emissions since, let's say, about 1997, when we signed the Kyoto Protocol? Yeah, Canada is not doing a good job. Uh, we've been making commitments to reduce emissions for decades, and so far we haven't met any of those commitments. Our emissions are up about 13% since 1997, the year that uh, Canada and other nations signed the Kyoto Protocol. Under that agreement, Canada pledged to reduce its total greenhouse gas emissions to 6% below 1990 levels by 2012. Had we met that target, Canadian CO2 emissions would now be approximately 400 parts per million. Uh, instead of about 550. So we're far, far above the commitments we made in uh, Kyoto. In the lead up to the 2015 Paris climate talks, Canada pledged again to reduce emissions, this time by 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. We're making some progress toward that target, but we're not making nearly enough. Largely what's happened is a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been harvested in the form of reducing emissions from electricity production, coal-fired power plants, etc., have been shut down. But in a whole bunch of other sectors like agriculture, transportation, home heating, etc., where we're really not making enough progress there, and the government has uh, a gap of several tens of millions of tons that they need to, to figure out how to make those emission reductions in order to get us back on track to meet our 2030 commitments. In agriculture, there's 
an upward trend in Canadian agricultural emissions. Uh, agricultural emissions make up about 12% of the Canadian total, and those emissions are going up. There's three main types of emissions in agriculture. Uh, the first is what most people think of when they think of emissions, that's carbon dioxide emissions from the combustion of fuel. So on the farm, that would be diesel fuel in tractors and combines, uh, gasoline in trucks and cars, and, and natural gas burnt in heating buildings and heating water. And also, if you're on the prairies in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, emissions from the generation of electricity as well. Those emissions make up uh, about 15% of all emissions. Most of the emissions on our farms are methane from cattle and nitrous oxide from nitrogen fertilizer use. And what we see there is, especially with nitrogen, those emissions are going up very, very fast. Farmers in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and other provinces are using more and more nitrogen. As they do that, the nitrous oxide emissions are going up very quickly. And that's really driving an upward trend in, in agricultural emissions overall. So we need to be trending all emissions downward, but unfortunately, agricultural emissions are trending upward. So in your report, Darren, you write that it's kind of less of the case that agriculture products produce greenhouse gas emissions, but more the case that agriculture inputs produce emissions. And you sort of went over some of these uh, inputs, things like fuel, nitrogen fertilizer, things like that. But could you talk a little bit about the relationship between these things and emissions, but also the alternatives to these high emission inputs as they currently exist? This is the really critical point, the point that everyone should understand about agriculture. And we go through this in our report. And the point is this. Agriculture does not produce greenhouse gas emissions. Agricultural inputs produce greenhouse gas emissions. And, and people often shake their head when they first hear that. But when you think about the long term history, it really becomes clear. Humans have practiced agriculture for about 10,000 years. For 9,900 of those years, for 99% of the time, we've practiced agriculture. It didn't affect the makeup of the atmosphere. It didn't affect the climate. It didn't affect the temperatures. For 99% of the time that we practiced agriculture on Earth, it was zero net emission. It's only in the last 100 years that agriculture has become a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions. And it's no coincidence that it's in the last 100 years that our farms have become significant consumers of high energy, energy intensive, petroleum derived inputs. So it really is the, the case that the emissions coming out of agriculture are a function of the inputs being pushed into agriculture. And you, you can think about uh, what we did over the last, through the 20th century. Before the 20th century, agricultural production systems were largely circular flow systems. The, the fertility, the, the nitrogen, the phosphorus went in a circle, the carbon went in a circle, even seeds, you know, the plants produced seeds and the seeds grew more plants. Everything in agriculture really went in a circle. What we did in the 20th century is we created something new. We created a, a linear flow agricultural system. So we, we broke a lot of those circular flows open and we started pushing larger and larger quantities of inputs into one end, more and more fuel, then fertilizer and then chemicals and steel and plastic and all sorts of inputs into one end. And that had a positive effect in that it pushed ever larger amounts of food out the other end. But it also pushed ever larger amounts of emissions and, and other uh, sometimes toxins, unintended consequences, etc. So the, the emissions coming out are a function of the, the inputs we push in. And one thing that we say in the, the Tackling the Farm Crisis report is that any low emission food system will be a low input food system. So in order to get those emissions down, we have to 
get input use down. And you asked about alternatives to inputs. There, there's lots. Uh, as I said, for, for 99% of the time that we practiced agriculture, we did that without high input use. Uh, we're not going to go back to zero input, but a lot of the things that, that were prototyped and, and developed to a very high degree in the past, like crop rotations, uh, getting nitrogen from legumes instead of uh, from factories, a lot of those are being rediscovered by farmers as ways to maintain their production while becoming less and less dependent on petro-industrial farm inputs. So every so often, this idea that climate change is quote-unquote good for Canada gets suggested. And it's suggested because the idea is that climate change will expand our growing season, open up more land, etc. Could you tell us a bit about why climate change might not actually be such a great thing to happen to Canada's agricultural regions? Yeah, the kinds, the, the, the levels, the intensities of, of climate change that we're currently dialing in with our emissions are, are so dramatic that while it may be the case, and I, and I don't think it is, but even people who think that it may have small positive effects on yield in, in Saskatchewan and Alberta and other provinces, they've got to think about the bigger picture. Uh, those levels of climate change destabilize economies all over the world. So it means that a lot of the countries that would be buying our products would be thrust into tremendous economic, uh, political, social instability. We, we start to lose markets. Uh, also, it would dial in enough uh, sea level rise that the ports that are used to ship grain around the world would be swamped and dysfunctional and, and damaged. Uh, but even, even back at home, if we're looking at three to six degrees of temperature increase, the storms and the floods and uh, the droughts, the multi-year droughts that could unleash are, are completely unknowable. When you look at Canada and, and farm production now, the losses are getting larger and larger and we're only at about uh, one to two degrees in Canada. If we look at three, four, five, six degrees, large parts of agricultural Large areas of agricultural production might even have to be abandoned in Canada. Now, that all sounds very dire, but we, we have to stress that that isn't necessarily where we're going to end up. It is the track we're on right now, but we can get off that track and get on a more positive track if we reduce emissions faster, make more ambitious targets and meet those targets. So uh, we, we can act to avert that kind of negative outcome. But if we don't act more aggressively, that is where we'll end up. What are some of the practices that are available to farmers that could sequester carbon and slow climate change? There's a whole bunch of things that farmers can do. The first thing that we need to do as farmers is we probably need to stop going in the wrong direction. So if you look at a graph of nitrogen fertilizer use on the prairies in Alberta, say, that graph goes up and up. That's the biggest driver of increasing emissions from agriculture. So the first thing we have to do is we have to start finding ways to deal with the largest single source of emissions and the, and the one that, uh, that that's really driving the upward growth in emissions, and that is nitrogen fertilizer use. We need to stop using more of that. We need to start using less of it. We need to find ways to use it more efficiently. Scientists and experts are developing programs. One of them is called 4R. Uh, 4R stands for the right formulation of fertilizer at the right rate, placed in the right place at the right time. These are ways that we optimize and, and maximize the efficiency of that fertilizer use. Uh, nitrogen fertilizer is a tremendous climate problem. Nitrogen fertilizer is probably unique 
amongst all human materials and processes in that it is a major source of all three of the main greenhouse gases. Some of your listeners will know that the three main greenhouse gases are carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane. And I can't think of anything that produces all three other than nitrogen fertilizer. So when, when nitrogen fertilizer is applied in the field, it emits nitrous oxide. The factories that make it are huge sources of carbon dioxide, and the, the natural gas feedstock that, that's used to make that fertilizer, uh, a huge amount of methane leaks from the, the distribution and production of natural gas. So nitrogen fertilizer really is a huge greenhouse gas emission and, and climate change problem. So the first thing we need to do is, is really take a more respectful stance toward that and, and find ways to use that high emission fertilizer just as, as carefully and efficiently as we can. Other things we need to do, we need to, to look at the on-farm energy use. We need to electrify everything possible and perhaps uh, install more on-farm renewable energy. So we need to find ways to heat water and, and buildings on our farms with electricity and then use uh, renewables to produce that electricity so we can eliminate emissions from building heating and water heating. And farther down the road, uh, just as electric cars are taking off, uh, you know, 10 years ago, most people wouldn't think electric cars were going to be a, a practical alternative in the future. Now, for anyone who can afford one, they are tremendously fast and luxurious uh, alternatives. Uh, down the road, we need to find ways to electrify some of our farm equipment. Uh, probably first would be small and medium-sized tractors. It'll be a little harder for large machinery, but we could start seeing some electric uh, small and medium-sized tractors down the road. So then you could start to see a path to low emission and, and zero emission production of food with that machinery. There's a whole range of other things we can do. We need to take some steps to reduce emissions from cattle. Uh, cattle produce methane when they digest grass. Uh, that needs to be minimized. But cattle are also, and, and I want to stress this, they're also a tremendously important part of diverse grassland ecosystems. So there's there's positives there that we don't want to lose. We will actually want to maximize the benefits of cattle on grass. But at the same time, because they do emit methane, we need to deal with that too. So farming famously involves moving and harvesting for total lack of a better word, stuff, which means tractors and machinery make up a really important part of this whole process. What are kind of the options for reducing emissions from tractors and other machinery besides electrification, which you've already gone over in terms of their manufacturing, things like that? Yeah, we, we really need a, a lot of R&D research and development on this. The options are sort of three things need to happen with machinery. I've mentioned electrification of everything possible. So, you know, small, anything with a small engine or a medium-sized engine, uh, an auger, uh, a loader tractor, uh, a small chore tractor, all those, those could probably be electrified. The large machinery may be able to be electrified, or maybe hydrogen might be another option there. And the other thing is about 40% of all the energy that is involved in machinery is actually involved in the production. So about 60% of the, the lifetime energy use comes from from using the machine and the diesel fuel you put in and about 40 percent comes from the production so we also need to find ways to produce that machinery in factories that are run by renewable energy etc so that the the emissions from the production of machinery can be reduced as well so a combination of renewable energy electrification and possibly although it's a bit more speculative maybe hydrogen fuels for some of that large machinery those are ways that we can reduce the emissions from 
machine reproduction and use. Lighting, heating, water pumps. These are all things that are used on farms. And these are all also energy intensive systems that tend to have a carbon footprint. What do you think could be done with these types of systems? Yeah, when you listen to people talking about the the larger economy and, and how we're going to meet our 2030 and 2050 emission targets in Canada, the first thing they say is electrify everything. Electrify everything possible and install either decentralized or centralized zero emission electricity production. So that means solar panels on farms, large solar arrays, uh, wind turbines, those sorts of things. So when it comes to farm heating, uh, water heating, space heating, all of those things, we probably need to move away from natural gas and move to electricity. For most people, that's going to seem unaffordable right now. Heating with electricity is more expensive than heating with natural gas. But building retrofit programs can kind of close that gap by reducing the amount of heating and cooling we need to do. If our buildings are, are much more efficient because the windows are uh, as good as they can be and the walls are, are much better insulated and the building requires less heat overall, then heating with electricity becomes a, a viable option. And as our provinces move to remove coal and, uh, and natural gas combustion and become the grids become cleaner, then that reduces the emissions from electricity production that can go into that heat. And in the interim, uh, farmers can put solar rays up on their farms. Intensive agriculture, so that's high input, energy intensive crops, has a really, really large footprint. And it also tends to view the soil itself as basically a medium almost that like transmits fertilizer inputs into plants. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some alternative methods for growing crops and also for increasing the amount of carbon that gets sequestered in the soil, especially when you compare it to this traditional, although I guess that's not quite accurate because it's relatively modern, but the common type of intensive agriculture that is currently used. Yeah, that's a great question, Kate. And it really gets to the the, the core of the whole transition. We need to not just tweak our farms a little bit, you know, maybe dial back the fertilizer a little bit or swap one big diesel tractor for a big electric tractor. We really need to rethink the whole way that we approach growing food. What we've largely done over the last century is we've moved from getting most of our inputs and fertility from, we used to get them from biology, now we get them from industry. So fertility used to come from biological processes, now it largely comes from industrial processes, from fertilizer factories. We need to rediscover the power of biology. We need to rediscover the power of sun on leaves and and roots in rich, carbon-rich soils that have a lot of organic matter in them. We need to start thinking deeply about those soils and rebuilding them. The last number of decades has largely been a time when our soils have been degraded and uh, some of the the low tillage approaches taking now are starting to build those soils up. But we really need to do a lot more of that and really start thinking deeply about how we we mend and rebuild those soils. Because carbon-rich soils with a lot of organic matter, there's so many benefits. They hold so much more water and that brings uh, climate change resilience and, and adaptation. It means that when the rains don't come, that those soils are better at holding water. And it means when heavy rains do come, those soils are better at absorbing water, so less runs off. So there's a whole bunch of climate change adaptation and resilience benefits we can get if we rebuild those soils back closer to the, the, the kind of organic matter and carbon levels they had 
when uh, when Europeans first came to the prairies and broke those soils for agriculture. Uh, No-till agriculture has started that, but uh, things like regenerative agriculture can go a lot farther. We need to look at things like uh, more complex rotations. We need to look where possible at uh, cover crops, although sometimes in the fall it's just not possible to put in a cover crop on the prairies. It's too dry, but as much as possible, we need to keep things growing on that soil, keep feeding the biology, keep live roots in, the, in there, and really start to put as much carbon into those soils as we can. The other thing at the same time, the, the other reason that we need to get back in touch with biology is it's, it's a way that allows us to reduce input use. So if we're going to use less nitrogen from factories, we have to find ways to get more nitrogen from biology. So we need to incorporate more legumes into our rotations, maybe forages, maybe perennials, maybe more complex rotations, and maybe even intercropping, growing more than one crop in the field at the same time so that they can uh, provide co-benefits to each other. So uh, agriculture that much more emulates natural systems. Our fields look very, very different from natural systems right now. The inputs are largely from factories and applied externally. We need to move back in a direction where we get more of our fertility from biology and less from industry. A problem we've encountered a number of times on this podcast when it comes to climate change and to decarbonization is that there really is no shortage of technical solutions and policy solutions that could be adopted. And you've outlined a number of them as they pertain to agriculture in this episode. But the real problem is that entrenched actors don't want to see their profits challenged in any way, which means that government is often lobbied into inaction or created basically structurally to be inactive, or is very hesitant to take any kind of effective but aggressive action on these issues. And I'm wondering what role you and the National Farmers Union see for the government in Canada to transition agriculture, farming, and our food system to becoming a low-carbon system. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Kate. That's really true. It's, it's not very difficult to come up with solutions to agricultural emissions. We know that we have to use fewer inputs. We know we have to use less nitrogen, for instance. The problem is, if you were to look at a graph of farmers' gross revenues and net income, what you'd find is the distance between the gross revenue line and the net income line gets larger and larger and larger through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and into the 21st century. And the gap between those two lines is the amount that farmers are sending to input suppliers. And it's become so extreme that now the, the input suppliers, the companies that sell fuels and fertilizers and chemicals and machinery and uh, other inputs, they are capturing more than 90%, more than 90 cents out of every dollar that farmers produce. They, we have a high input, high emission system because it's been very, very profitable for the companies that sell inputs. Those companies now are lobbying government to tweak the system, to apply some techno patches to it, but not to really rock the boat, not to do anything that really reduces the amount of, of money that they can take out of the system. So they have a vision of high-tech techno fixes, of tweaks around the edges, of trying to somehow uh, use very expensive high-tech seeds or high-tech fertilizers, et cetera, to, to sort of ameliorate this problem. That's one vision of how this is going to go, and that's the, the, the corporate vision. What really has to happen is something very different, and that is we have to disentangle ourselves as farmers from these corporations. These corporations are taking more and more and more of 
the revenue that farmers produce and then sort of choking off the net income supply. So what we say in our report is that as we move from this high input, high emission system that has been created by corporations that sell inputs, as we move to a low input, low emission system, we can also increase the margins. We're less over-dependent on those inputs. Uh, we're buying less of those inputs, less of the money is going off the farm. So as we reduce input use, we reduce the amount of money we put out for those inputs, and we reduce the emissions. And that really is the proper solution. Corporations that sell inputs are going to uh, they're going to push back against that, but that is the way that we have to go. We have to find ways to maintain our production while using fewer inputs and thus uh, reduce emissions, but also at the same time increase our margins and our net income. Absolutely, 100%. Darren, thank you so much for joining us here on the Alberta Advantage. If our listeners want to learn more about the National Farmers Union and more about your work, where should they look? Thanks, Kate. They could go to www.nfu.ca and uh, they can find a number of things there. At nfu.ca, there is the uh, Tackling the Farm Crisis and Climate Crisis Report, which is about 100 pages. It provides a ton of detail around what we talked about here, a lot of detail and footnotes and, and places they can go for more information and to check the, the numbers and the facts. And uh, for those people who don't want to plunge into a 100-page report, there's also two-page flyers there that kind of lay out the, the key themes and messages in a, in a format that you can read in a few minutes. Amazing. All right. Once again, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can hear a longer version of this episode and many more on albertaadvantagepod.com. So long, Calgary. 